A small-town journalist may have found the key that can unlock the mysteries of why some people experience paranormal phenomenon. Then we take a look at an old Native American story about a cave hidden out in the wilderness. It would sing the song of death, warning you not to come in. But warrior after warrior ventured into its dark depths. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. Hope you guys had a great weekend. We got a ton of stuff to cover. First off, let's give a shout out to our newest Patreon supporter, Mikhail Malone. Mikhail Malone, thank you so much for supporting the show. Really, really helps out a lot. If you can't support the Patreon, I totally understand. Just help get the word out about the show. That also helps out a lot. So, Mikhail, I'm going to toss you the keys to the Jason Jalopy. But, Mikhail, hold on to those keys for a second, because before we go anywhere, you can spin them around on your finger if you want, you know, keep keep yourself busy. So, I did a Patreon-exclusive live stream uh, on YouTube. So, it's something I was testing out. I didn't really announce it ahead. I announced it ahead of time on the Patreon, but I didn't use it as a marketing ploy to get more people to join because we were just kind of testing it out at the end of the live stream it went really well had a lot of fun talking to you guys it was like two hours long at the end of the live stream barfy man uh one of the longtime supporters of the show um said hey did you know chadwick bozeman died and of course i didn't believe it right because we were all joking around talking about you know which nickelodeon show was better than disney channel show and then we would start talking about conspiracies for a bit and then go back to like 90s cartoons it was it was a lot of fun but yeah yeah chadwick boseman passed away i obviously know that you guys probably know this at this point it, it's you know it's it's weird um it's really weird he's only the second superhero to die um you had and it really he's the first of the second wave of these movies um, even going all the way back to Blade, you have Wesley Snipes from there on. He was the first one to pass away. The only other one that I could think of in my lifetime was Christopher Reeves, Superman. And even that, you know, he got injured and then he was alive for a long time and he overcame all the, that horrible injury he suffered and eventually he passed away. And then you have uh, Chadwick, uh, the same thing. So it's it's quite the blow. It's and I get it, listen, I get it, because I know some people are probably saying, you know, Jason, people die every day, and people die every day from what he died of, which was colon cancer, and and I get that, I'm not diminishing, and I hope no one thinks anyone's diminishing that, but when you have a high pro, I'll tell you this right now, this is what I think, so he was battling colon cancer, stage three colon cancer for four years, and even though he died, he won that battle, and I'm going to tell you why. Myself, and I can guarantee you, 500,000 other people this week are going to call up their doctor and schedule a colonoscopy. I can guarantee it. And out of those 500,000 people around the world who get it tested, maybe 5% of them have something. But those 5% of them, their doctor's going to look at them and go, uh, you, you're really lucky you came in and got tested when you did. We can take care of this. His death will save lives. And that may be a small consolation for the people who loved him, for his fans, for, you know. But, but really, when you have somebody that high profile die of a disease like that, I, 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 we finished off the live stream and I had to do some other work. But then I spent the night and I was looking, what are the risk factors for this? Oh, it's basically being alive in the year 2020, sitting all day long, being overweight, 
having a diet of meats and, and processed foods. These are all things that a lot of people do. It's just, I can guarantee you people's lives will be saved because Chadwick Boseman died. So he may have passed away, but he won that battle against colon cancer because people will get screened for it. It will be caught in time. Their lives will be saved. And what more can you ask as a superhero than your legacy to be? You saved thousands of lives around the world. So I... That's, uh, and if you are in that risk factor, if you live in the year 2020, make an appointment, get tested, you know, honor his memory by having a camera stuck up your colon. It's not fun. I've done it before. It wasn't fun. We talked about that on the live stream, but that I think his legacy will be literally tens of thousands of people having their cancer caught early enough that it can be treated. So. Let's go ahead, Mikhail. Mikhail, stop spinning the keys halfway through that. He's like, ah, you know, he's just kind of holding his hands. Let's go, Mikhail. Let's go on a fun adventure. Again, we got a lot of stuff to cover here. So first off, let's hop in that Jason Jalopy. We are going to drive out to Idaho. Oh, we got it revved up, dude. This is a good little Jason Jalopy. We got a new engine and we got a V8. Passing up all those other lame cars, throwing tomatoes. I don't mind just having to stop at a tomato stand as we crossed into the Idaho state border, throwing tomatoes at people. Here we're going to meet a journalist. Her name is Becky Cook. Now, she was writing for a really, really small town newspaper called the Intermountain Farm and Ranch. So actually, it's not even a town newspaper. It's just a collection of farm and ranch newspapers. How the paper boy must have the best calves ever. He's just pedaling. He's like, throws the newspaper and he's like, 10 miles to the next farm. He's like, do, 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 do. He sees the Jason Jalopy goes by. He's like, can you give me a lift? We're throwing tomatoes at him. He's like, oh, man. So anyways, she writes for the Intermountain. Oh, there's a mountain in between the farm and the ranches, too. So that boy just must be super swole. That paper boy's a muscle man. Intermountain Farm and Ranch. She wrote an article. She would just write articles about farms and ranches in the cereal tomato thrower that stops her newspapers from being delivered. And then once she did a story about a guy who said he saw Bigfoot. She, she thought it was a kind of an interesting story. And the editor kind of chuckled and they published it. it in, the newspaper sold out. Apparently, they don't have the internet up there. They just can't go on the internet and read the article. The newspaper sold out. They had to do a second printing. The story doesn't take place in the 1940s, either. This takes place now. This woman's still alive. So it's not like 1892, and they're like, what? What's a bicycle? It's nowadays. So this the newspaper sold out. To, that poor paper boy, the, he gets a phone call. Hey, can you deliver another copy of that paper? He's like, ah. Yes, he's like, let me just drink all this creatine. Anyway, so she runs a story on Bigfoot. Now, what's interesting was it was a huge hit. And her editor was like, hey, how about you do a story about ghosts for Halloween? That'll get them rooms buying her newspaper. And she said, nah, my heart really wasn't in it. And she started researching Bigfoot. She started specifically looking at Bigfoot stories in Idaho. Since then, she's collected 60 stories where she's sitting down and interviewing these people, which is really the dream of paranormal investigators, I think, to do sit-down interviews. And she's become an author. She's written three books all about Bigfoot. And it's all just a collection of stories. Now, she ends up becoming the news. Because now she's this small town, not even small town, this small geographical region newspaper journalist who now has really kind of made a living writing about Bigfoot. So she got interviewed by that big city newspaper, East Idaho News. So I came across this in, in this interview with the East Idaho News. Very fascinating thing. So what she explains to the East Idaho News is that 
among the people that she's interviewed, 70% of them, so way more than just chance, 70% of the people she's interviewed have had at least one near-death experience. And she said that may be why they can see these things in the first place. That's fascinating detail. I know people have said, well, you know, sometimes near-death experience can open the third eye, but for someone to say, and also Bigfoot is considered a physical phenomenon. We talk about interdimensional Bigfoot on this show. We talk about uh, phantasmal Bigfoots and all that stuff. But generally, Bigfoot is considered a biological creature. And we have someone who's written three books on the subject, interviewed over 60 different people, sit down, interview people. 70% of them have had at least one near-death experience. That is a, that's a really interesting statistic. And again, because it would be one thing if if 70% of people who saw ghosts had a near-death experience. You go, well, that makes sense. You came close. You got your face pressed against the ghost glass and you're looking into heaven. Hopefully, right? And then you got sucked back down to earth. So it would make sense that the veil was thinner for you. But because Bigfoot is generally considered a biological phenomenon that leaves evidence, footprints, poop, hair, things like that, why would having a near-death experience... That'd be like saying you 70% of people who have near-death experiences also see rhinos. Because rhinos are a real thing. And if the Bigfoot is generally considered a biological entity, there shouldn't be any difference, right? It shouldn't matter whether or not you had a near-death experience or not. You should, you, a rhino is a rhino. So that's just kind of one of those little interesting tidbits of information that we can kind of file away in our brain. Does having a near-death experience... Well, there's a couple things we can pull away from this. One, does having a near-death experience make you more prone to seeing things like this? Seeing supernatural. That almost seems like a given, right? I've never had a near-death experience where I've seen the Tunnel of Light or anything like that. I've come very close to dying. Like, barely got away from dying. But that's not really what they mean by near-death experience. That's where you die. Your soul leaves your body. goes somewhere. Again, hopefully heaven, Right? And then we've done episodes about people who have had near-death experience for hell. Those, that was a really cool episode. But I've never had anything like that. And I've had paranormal experiences. So, um, But we have that. And you would think if someone had a paranormal experience, i.e. a near-death experience, it would make them more likely to be able to see weird stuff. But does that even play into uh, things like cryptids? And actually, now I just thought of this. What about all of the old stories of shamans? Who were constantly like walking around. I don't understand how any of them lived to be past the age of 20. Because they're constantly walking around eating stuff and going. Vision quest. Vision quest. And then eventually they're going to get to the poison berries. Right? Like the poison berries are just sitting at the edge of the forest going. Let's look nice and shiny for that shaman over there. How did they live? Because they're constantly testing stuff out. Maybe they had a bunch of kids with them. Maybe they had a bunch of nephews. And they're like. Hey Jerry. go, uh, Go eat that delicious berry over there. And he's like, okay, that's not part of my vision quest. He sees the other kids tripping out, looking at their hands. He's like, now that's a vision quest. He pushes the kids out of the way. They were constantly testing these. I don't actually don't know. I don't know. If I don't know. If shamans were basically Willy Wonka. They had a bunch of Oompa Loompas running experiments on every edible thing. But to stumble across the stuff that would give you a vision quest, you would have to smoke the forest, right? You'd have to eat everything. You'd have to eat every mushroom before you found a magic mushroom. And then you could pass that information on and say, hey, dude, stay away from those mushrooms. But even then, the guy who ate that one and died in the forest, they wouldn't, they wouldn't know. So what if that is where we get all these like legends of cryptids ba- or the legends of these legends where you had shaman who had near-death experiences 
And then you could have warrior after warrior go into the Amazon jungle and not see anything. And then one day, the shaman comes walking back into the village. And he's like, oh, guys, listen, dude, there's some headless mule out there. So just stay away from it, dude. It looks like a hot woman, but just stay away from it. Everyone's like, what? I didn't see anything. But because he had that near-death experience, he was able to see those cryptids that were walking around. I don't know. It's an interesting fact. I don't really know where to go with it, but it's another key in that mystery. Why are some people able to see this stuff and others aren't? Does it have something to do with the fact that they almost died and their consciousness was unlocked a little bit? Who knows? But Becky Cook, great looking out. Again, that was just, I was reading an article about her and that little nugget was buried in the middle of it. I was like, that that's a really important fact for any paranormal investigator. Or even Bigfoot researcher, right? You have those people on those squatch hunting shows on AMC. They're like, hit me up with more ketamine, man. They should do a whole episode where they're constantly trying to die. They're like, uh, uh. It's just a reality show and everyone's kind of unconscious. And then someone wakes them up. They're like, ah, (laughs) Bigfoot, Bigfoot's right behind you. I spent years looking for him. All I had to do was die and come back to life. And the Bigfoot's standing, standing outside waving. Cameraman can't film it. And then the guy's like, oh, you can see it. He's like walking towards the camera. He's strangling the cameraman. Mikhail, let's go ahead and fire up that carpenter copter as we watch this Squatch Hunter commit multiple near homicide. Because he doesn't really kill him. He brings him back to life. <laughs> I think that's just assault. I think that's just attempted murder at that point. Mikhail, let's fire up that carpenter copter. We're leaving behind this crime scene before the cops show up. We are headed out to Wisconsin. <laughs> As we're flying out there, I want to make another real quick announcement. I've started changing up the art for the show. We're going back to kind of the default Dead Rabbit logo. I've been reading some books on branding recently, of like how to how to build your brand online. So we're going to that basic logo, but it doesn't mean that I, I still, I love getting fan art from you guys. So if you guys send me fan art, I got a piece from Polly recently, and, and what I need is if you send me a piece of fan art and say, I allow you to use this, you can use this on your podcast, I would like to do a fan art Friday, where every so often I can show off some of your great artwork. I was I was cycling through it too much, and I even was having someone look at it, and they go, what's your brand? Like, I don't have a brand. So we're going back to that default Dead Rabbit logo for a while, but I've loved all the artwork I've gotten so far, and it's been great. I got John and Ashley and Robert and Grant. You guys have done amazing jobs with the artwork, and uh, I'm going to keep it, obviously. I'm thinking about... I don't know, I, I was thinking about like framing it and putting it up, and it probably will show back up in those Fan Art Fridays, but if you guys have artwork that I can put down into the specifications of what iTunes wants, we'll mix it up. I was mixing it up too much, so you, you that's why I'm just getting in front of stuff. I'm sure that people will go, hey, how come you went back to that logo? That's why, because I bought a bunch of books on Humble Bundle talking about branding, and I've talked to some branding people as well, so... Mikhail's like shrugging his shoulders. He's like, dude, we're flying to Wisconsin. What are you talking about? We're just like looping around the state. Where are we going? I'm like, sorry, sorry. Just want to, I told you a lot of stuff in this episode. Pay attention. Not you. You you just fly, you just fly the copter. We're going back in time to the year 1887. So let's land this carpenter copter in Richland City. Nowadays, it's known as Richland Center. But at this time, it was known as Richland City. And we see a man. He's writing a letter to his friend because he's a nerd. And that's how they talked to each other back then. They couldn't do emojis over telegrams. I actually have an episode about that coming up. But 
probably gave it away. <laughs> just gave it away. But anyways, he's writing stuff down. He folds the letter up. You guys know how you guys know how letters work. Anyways, so this guy named Paul Seifert is reconnecting with an old friend in Austria, this Austrian scientist who's unnamed. This is this is as real as a story as you can get, though. There's a lot of great sources for this. We're going to call this guy Arnold, this Austrian scientist. So Paul's writing this letter to Arnold, and he's like, hey, dude, I finally settled down in Richland City. It's really cool out here. A lot of awesome stuff. I've met a woman, had some kids. You know how sex works? You know how procreation works? Uh, sincerely, Paul. That was the whole letter. He mails it off to Arnold, and, and him and Arnold start communicating back and forth with these letters. Now, Arnold, he goes, "Hey, I've heard a lot about those American Aborigines, which I, w- I guess was the term used back then in 1887 in Austria, at least." Because I've heard stuff about those American Aborigines. Could you send me some of those artifacts? Which nowadays is a crime, right? <laughs> nowadays is actually it was a crime back then, but nowadays it, it's basically a federal crime. Back then, it was just like, dude, why are you ransacking that grave? Which I think was just grave robbing, which may be a misdemeanor. But anyways, law be damned. Paul writes back to Arnold and goes, oh, yeah, you want some uh, Native American? Let's be a little more politically correct. He scratches out American Aborigine. You want some Native American stuff? Yeah, sure. And he begins sending Arnold these riches, like beautiful artifacts forged from indigenous people. Arnold writes back to Paul and goes, where are you getting these things? Paul says, you got to come out and visit. I got the bulk of this information. This guy must, this must be all he does with his life. And I'm not saying that as an insult. This dude has created this amazing website, which I believe is taken from a book he wrote. We're going to mostly, or pretty much all be sourcing the Encyclopedia of Winnipego Mythology. This was written by Richard L. D. D. Terrell. Sorry, Richard, for mispronouncing your name, but thank you for writing this. So let's go back in time. Now, the Carpenter Copter has just become a, a tree because it's hidden, and we might need it to get away at some point, but we can't. We are now long, long ago. This place was dominated by the Winnipego tribe. So, long before pilgrims showed up, any of that stuff, there's a couple of little Winnipego tribe kids running around, playing tag. You're it! No, you're it! It's no fun if there's only two kids, right? That's kind of a boring game of tag. I guess that's just chasing somebody that's not even really tag. But they're running through, and people in the village are like, you guys better come back soon. Actually, no. I'm looking at my notes. (laughs) They went out to hunt deer. They weren't They weren't doing much of horseplay. They weren't even horses back then. They're like, don't do any of that play. The kids were like, what? Everyone pauses every time they say it. These kids were actually efficient deer hunters. There was no goofing off. There was no goofing off in this tribe. I mean, I'm sure they did have some fun. But they didn't want their kids to just run off into the woods. So they're on, they're on a mission. They go out to go deer hunting. But two days pass. They don't come home. So a couple warriors go, let's go find them. So, so Great Eagle, who's the head of the tribe, Great Eagle gets wind of this, that two kids are missing. Now they have, have been squabbling with other rival tribes in the area. So he sends off a couple warriors. He's like, go find those kids, bring them back. Don't tell them not to commit any. Play. And the warriors, they know exactly what that pause means. They just kind of nod their heads. They go off. They begin trailing these kids. They're finding little footprints in the mud, feet prints in the mud. 
think is the actual is it footprints doesn't matter it doesn't matter they're just walking by they're having this argument they're like it's footprints no it's feet prints anyways these warriors there's about eight of them get to where they see the trail lead into a cave a hereto undiscovered cave that's quite a ways away from the village like, oh, the kids must be in the cave. Hopefully, they're not in the belly of a bear or fell in it or something like that. But we'll just go in and get them. So two of the warriors, they go into the cave. They don't come out. Instead, what comes out is what's known as, in this paper, the death song of an Indian. In Native American culture, one of the things that they would do is, before you were tortured or executed or both, preferably, save the torture for after I'm executed, guys. Because I'm doing some Groucho Marx routine. You would sing the death song. It was a very defiant song. You knew you were going to die. This were basically your last words. Sometimes they had a thing called the prisoner's dance. Where they would tie your elbows behind your back. Your wrists in front of you. Very uncomfortable position. Give you like a shaker. Like a rattle. And tie your ankles together. And they would make you dance through town. But while you were dancing through town, you would sing the death song of an Indian. It would be your last words. I don't think it had to be anything in particular. I don't think they're like, no, you got the lyrics wrong. Do it again. And you're like, okay, I'm just going to keep getting it wrong so you never torture me to death. (laughs) But I think it was you basically being like, I'm innocent of this crime. Okay, I did a little bit of it, but I didn't really mean to. And people were like, what? So it was basically your final words. The death song of an Indian. They didn't call it. They had a tribal word for it, but that's what it was called in this paperwork. So anyways, so these warriors are standing outside the cave and they hear the death song coming out of the cave and they're like, uh, (laughs) that's not, that's never good, right? It's never good. The sun's starting to set and the warriors go, well, we got it. Now we got to go in and get the two dudes who went in there. Maybe they wrestled and fell down off a cliff. (laughs) People were like, okay, maybe, but who's singing the song? I don't know. Why don't you go in and find out? So two of them say, tell you what, we'll stay outside. The rest of you go inside, find out what happened, bring everyone out. Hopefully bring the kids out too. The warriors grab their weapons, march into the dark mouth of the cave. The two braves are sitting out there, sun setting. They hear the death song coming out of the cave. They wait until dusk, sitting outside of that cave. And they're like, no one's coming out of there. And we, we are not going in there. So they go back to the village. Next morning, Great Eagle is like, oh man, what a relaxing night. I hope there's no bad news today. I hope they found those kids safe and sound. Really could use some deer jerky. And then he's like, oh great, as he just sees the two dudes walking from his group that he sent off. So he brings a hundred warriors. This was a huge tribe in the area. He brings a hundred warriors to the cave. And he's like, okay, this is pretty easy to figure out. Let's just send a bunch of people in. And like, that works, right, guys, right? He turns around to the two people who told the story. That works, right? We send people in, they're going to come out. And the two warriors are like, uh, no, that's why we're here, dude. Your great eagle's like, okay, we'll try it. So he sends in 30 warriors and five torchbearers. Which I'm sure the torchbearers were going first. There's no point having a torch behind you. They go into this cave, and then the death song starts. Great eagle's like, okay. Probably not best plan, but I didn't really like those. I didn't really like those warriors, anyways. And those torchbearers didn't know how to bear a torch if they could save a life, and they couldn't because they're probably all dead. So then he goes, "Okay, I got a new plan, guys. Everyone 
hold each other's hands and form a human chain. And then, like, you just can pull people out. Makes sense. It makes sense on paper. Because this is the working theory at this point. The sound, the death song, whatever that is. This is the working theory of the point. Something in there is killing these men or they're falling off a cliff. And really the most likely thing is they're falling off a cliff. Because they're not hearing sounds of battle. They're probably falling to their death. So if we have a human chain, if the first guy stumbles, there you go. They form this human chain. They're going in. Now... Somebody had to be the first dude, right? Somebody had to lose. But I guess they're probably trying to prove how brave they are. They're going in the chain. This chain's going into the darkness. And you have the first guy, second guy, third guy, all the way down. And as they're going through, at a certain point, the second guy turns to the third guy and goes, I can't feel the first guy any. And third guy realizes that he can't feel the second guy's arm. He's not holding it anymore. Completely disappeared in his grasp at that point pull me up oh dude dude experiment's over bro experiment's over the whole line comes back out and that third guy's like listen there it's not a cliff in there and it's definitely not anything killing like something's killing them i'm guessing but it's not a cliff i didn't feel anyone drop i didn't hear anything he goes that dude that dude just disappeared like i was holding i couldn't see him probably could have had a torchbearer up here but I just lost grip of them. Like, we were holding each other's hands, and then I was holding nothing. Great Eagle goes, okay, what's stronger than the grasp of a firm man? There's some woman over there smoking a cigarette. She's like, nothing, baby. He's like, ignore her. Ignore the village harlot. No, you know what's stronger than the grasp of a strong man? Is a sturdy rope. So they get a rope. Again, dude, who, I, people are volunteering for this because they want to show Great Eagle how brave they are. Guy's like, I'll do it, I'll do it. And nobody's stopping him. He's like, step aside, guys. Let me show you how it's done. And everyone's like pushing him forward. They're like, dude, do it. Show me how it's done. I want to know. I'm definitely not volunteering. They tie rope around his waist. Now they say, this is, again, they're not just like, we'll just run in there. They say, you walk in and then keep tugging it. Keep tugging the rope. You just keep tugging the rope the whole time. Take a couple steps, tug. Take a couple steps, tug. If you stop tugging, we're immediately going to yank you back. So hopefully you're not gassy or anything like that. Hopefully you didn't just eat a deer because you're going to throw up. And the guy's like, no, I got it. So he's walking into the cave and he tugs a bit, walks in, tugs a bit, walks in, tugs a bit. And he's constantly like, he's not taking like walking 10 feet and then tugging it. He's constantly like tugging it. The guy's holding the, the, guy's holding the rope, probably burning their hands. They're like, oh, I hope this guy disappears. He's a jerk. Eventually... They stop feeling the tug on the rope, and the men immediately yank the rope. There's nothing on it. It's just a loop. And Great Eagle's like, Ugh, I actually kind of like that guy. <laughs> actually, that was the first one that I actually feel bad about. I actually like that dude. Barry! Now, each time, I forgot this detail, <laughs> each time people disappeared in the cave, the death song would start up again. Forgot that detail. Sorry, I got a little carried away. So this is constantly going on. And Great Eagle's like, okay, first off, we got to have a massive funeral for Barry because that dude, that, that guy was close to my heart. And the rest of them will put up, I don't know, some tombstones or something like that. But no one else can come to this cave. No one else can come to this cave. Too spooky. People are like, we agree. We you agree. Now, people still went to the cave. People still went to the cave to see if they were brave enough to handle it. Like, you would have young warriors go up there and be like, no, I can go in the cave. And they'll be like, no, don't, don't. 
And then people would come back and be like, dude, he went in the cave. And everyone's like, oh, don't go to the cave. Don't go to the cave. So people were still trying to do this. And you kept having these people disappear in the cave. And you kept hearing the death song. Several months later in the Winnebago tribe, this dude shows up with this 10-year-old boy. It's particular for two reasons. One, the dude is a white guy. This story takes place long before Columbus, long before pilgrims, long before settlers, anything like that. He's described as having pale skin and a long white beard. And in Native American blood, you, they don't really grow beards. Genetic fluke, they don't really have facial hair. This white guy shows up, the long white beard, and he's blind. He, the term actually that they use in the story is utterly blind. Which, again, the guy who uh, wrote this, uh, Richard, I can't pronounce your last name, dude, sorry. But Richard says, when the term utterly blind is used in this context, it means not only is he physically blind, but he has mystical sight. You're not just blind, which can happen through an injury or something like that, eating too many mushrooms. He's so blind he can see through the veil. And they, the tribe people automatically, like, they can recognize this power in him. The other interesting thing was the 10-year-old boy is a native boy from another tribe. He goes, I'm from another tribe. This dude doesn't speak your language, but I do. And we're going to hang out here for a while. And the tribe's like, yeah, sure. This episode's going long. I hope you guys don't mind. I found this story fascinating. One of the women of the village, though, sees the 10-year-old boy and goes, Johnny! Or whatever his name was, right? (laughs) Everyone's like, what? Who's Johnny? She's like, he is. She runs out to the boy. Her son was one of the first kids who went missing in the cave. One of the two deer hunters who went looking for the deer and then disappeared. The one that set off this whole thing. That was him. She goes, you're back. You're back. After all this time, you're back. You're back. And the kid goes, I don't know who you're talking about. I'm not him. I'm not him. I'm from another tribe. Back off, lady. Great Eagle is watching all this stuff. And he's like, okay, that's a little weird, right? does kind of look like that kid who went missing. And the mom swears it's her son. But let's table that for a second. Let's table table that weird thing for a second. I want to talk to this white dude. They begin talking, and this man, this stranger, again, he has this translator, because they say he speaks an unknown tongue. It's almost immediate they can tell that this guy has some sort of mystical power. So he is invited to stay into the village, and he is now known as Great Healer. And he's able to heal people. Probably perform a couple tricks too. Probably juggle. I don't know. That'd be kind of impressive. A blind juggler. The whole time the mom's like, that's a great trick, but please give me my son back. And the guy's just bowing and the kid, his eyes are going side to side. I'm not your son. But anyways, that's that's a subplot. And you wonder why these episodes go long sometimes. So anyways, eventually one day Great Eagle's hanging out with Great Healer and he goes... I've never told you about the cave, have I? And Great Healer's like, what cave? And he's like, oh, dude, you won't believe this. You know, you want to know why that woman keeps stalking your interpreter? He's like, yeah, I did think that was kind of weird. I'm blind, but I'm not that blind. That woman makes a lot of noise when she's trying to kidnap my interpreter. He goes, so here's the story. And so Great Eagle tells Great Healer the whole story. A couple kids went missing, and then all these braves went missing, and so on and so on. And Great Healer does what any of us would do, right? He'd say, take me to that cave. I want to go to that cave. Because obviously, if you heard about it, you would want to go to this cave. Great healer, great eagle, and a bunch of dudes, right? They're not going alone. March through the forest. They said they moved through the forest like a semicircle, just protecting these two. They all get to this cave. So great eagle's there, all the warriors are there. Great healer's there with his translator. 
And Great Eagle goes, yeah, there's the cave. Anyone who walks into it disappears. And then we hear this song, the death song, and um, which I think is actually a song by Marilyn Manson. Now that, I, now that I think about it, it's actually a really good song. But that's not the song they're hearing. Maybe it was. Great Eagle, Great Healer, Translator, all the people. He's telling Great Healer this. And Great Healer goes, I'm going to go check this cave out. Because I'm, I'm not afraid of no ghosts. And the translator's probably like, uh, it's probably not a good idea, bro. But he goes into the cave, but he doesn't go alone. He takes the 10-year-old boy with him. So they go into the cave, and Great Eagle's like, oh, man, I really like that guy. Plus, he owes me like 20 bucks. I hope he doesn't die. I hope he's not Barry part two. And as Great Healer and the boy enter the cave, they hear the death song start. And they're like, oh, no. And Great Eagle's like, dang it, I sh- I'm going to stop telling people about this cave. No more, I'm not going to do this. But then the death song gets louder. Louder than they've ever heard it before. And the warriors are kind of looking at each other nervously. Great Eagle's looking around, he's like, uh-oh. This is not normal. <laughs> Normally, caves that devour people's souls and sing don't get this loud. <laughs> All that other stuff's normal, but this is weird. The song gets so loud. The trees start to sway to the rhythm. Everyone's just waiting for something super bad to happen. And then... Utter silence. Not a sound can be heard. Except footsteps. And out of that cave walks Great Healer. Alone, by the way. He is alone. Great healer walks out of that cave with a peaceful smile on his face. He looks up at the sun. He's blind, so he can do that. He looks up at the sun with this serene smile on his face, and the sunlight just kind of brushes across his skin. He then begins to sing the death song himself in a language nobody can understand. He walks past Great Eagle, He walks past the warriors. He begins walking down to a river where there's a canoe sitting on the shore. Everyone's like, what? What is going on here? Great healer stands, gets in the canoe, standing straight up. And the canoe launches itself off the shore and without any oars, just begins floating down the river. Dude, standing up the whole time. And all the warriors and Great Eagle are just watching this dude perfectly pilot a canoe. Standing up, no paddles, and just goes around the river bend. They never saw him again. And Great Eagle's like, okay, that's great. Mystery solved, right? Let's just all go home. People are like, don't you want to see what's in the cave? Nope, nope. I've no- <laughs> I've lost all curiosity in the cave. I got floating boats. I got another missing 10-year-old kid. You, you're going to have to be brave enough to tell his mom what happened to him again. I'm done. I'm done with this cave. But of course, people are so curious. You're curious about this cave. I'm curious about this cave. We don't even know where it is, or do we? This is a long episode. A couple days later, one of the braves in the village was like, dude, I'm going into that cave. And people are like, come on, man. Don't. We've lost so many people in that cave. I'm going in that cave. I'm going in the cave. So he's able to rustle up a couple of his friends They head out there. At this point, it's basically a tourist trap, right? Everyone in the village knows where this thing is. He goes out there. He walks into the cave. And the two friends are like, dude, why did we get suckered into coming out here? We're going to have to walk all the way back. It's totally lame. 
friend walks out of the cave. He's like, oh, yeah, dude, just a cave in there. Not spooky at all. And people are like, what in the way? What just happened? He goes, listen, I'll tell you what happened. I walked to the cave. Nothing creepy happened. There's no cliff. Walked to the cave. Then I got to a point where the ceiling's so low you have to crawl. And I didn't want to do that. That was a little too much for me, right? But if you want to come in the cave with me, well, check it out. Now, this was the first person other than Great Healer who walked out of the cave. And that dude went nuts, right? Well, he went nuts and was magical. And his partner disappeared. His interpreter disappeared. But this was the first time someone's walked in and out of the cave and there hasn't even been a death song played. So the warrior goes in and he's able to convince one of his buddies to go in and they reach the end of the cave and it just comes into this little tunnel. They got to get down on their hands and knees and they're crawling in the dark and they're... What they enter into is a massive chamber. It's basically a giant room carved into the mountain. They see a throne carved into one of the walls. And all across the floor were hundreds of skeletons laying face down, arms spread wide out, hundreds of them. The two warriors ran out. They go back to the village. They tell Great Eagle, and Great Eagle then goes, listen, let's just seal the cave. Because obviously people are going to keep going in there. I don't even want to know what's in there. He said he thinks it's probably the home of some great spirit. It must be the rest. It, whatever. He probably isn't even done guessing. He's holding a photo of Barry. He's like, oh, man. No more berries. So they actually hide the entrance to the cave. Now, that legend had been around in Wisconsin for years. It was considered local Native American lore. But in the 1920s, I believe, 1920s, there was someone from Wisconsin who was reading a newspaper from Austria, from Vienna, Austria. This newspaper was called The Courier. You had someone from Wisconsin reading this newspaper from 1891. So they were reading like a 30-year-old newspaper, and they came across the story of an Austrian who visited Wisconsin. Again, this had been a legend. People thought that this was one of many, many legends of of great ghost stories, of great battles that may or may not be true, and you would never know, really, if there was any facts to it. But in, in in the 1920s, someone from Wisconsin found this article in The Courier, and it tells the story of an Austrian scientist whose friend, Paul Seifert, lived in Wisconsin and began sending him back artifacts from American Aborigines. So he was so curious, he traveled out to Richland City to meet his friend, Paul Seifert, and he goes, Paul, you gotta show me where this stuff is at. And he's like, fine. I and he's more than happy to show his old friend where he'd found these things. Paul Seifert leads Arnold to a cave. They walk into the cave. The ceiling gets low, and then they enter a room. Here's a direct quote from that article. Quote, Darkness and damp air surrounded us. Paul lit another torch. I cannot describe the horror I felt. The bottom of the cave was covered with skeletons of a vanished race. Skulls were everywhere. Here perished a tribe. Very near, I could say, a nation. Their belongings were scattered among the bones. Battle axes of stone, ancient pottery, whole and in fragments. Flint arrows and spears, whole and broken, everywhere. Unquote. 
he eventually starts panicking, as most people would. Paul seems to be very okay with this whole thing. And at a certain point, Arnold describes the sound of a howling. He said it sounded like maniacs all around him. He said it sounded like, quote, the moans of the dying under torture. And Paul goes, oh, no, no, that's just the sound of the air coming through the tunnel and the water dripping through the cave. Maybe, right? That's That's reasonable, right? But, okay, in a vacuum, sure. But when you're in an ancient throne room surrounded by a nation's worth of skeletons, you might want to think it might be supernatural. But but Arnold's like, dude, dude, we got to get out of there. Eventually, Arnold says he starts to see blue flashes of light all around him. And finally, Paul's like, yeah, yeah, sure. I've desecrated this grave enough or whatever this place is. He leads Arnold out. Now, Arnold returns to Austria Probably the first plane out of there. Planes weren't invented. He invents the plane. He's like, hurry up, hurry up. Gotta gotta invent aerodynamics real quick. Ghosts are chasing him. He's like, ah. He takes a steamer, probably. He takes a boat back to Vienna. He tells the story over there. So you have this story of this cave that pretty much matches, right? You have the cave room. You have all the skeletons. In two completely different geographical locations, long before the internet, long before you would have these rumors kind of floating around that you could build off of. Ancient stories connected, but separated by an ocean. So where is the cave? It probably exists because we have two stories that really verify it. We have this ancient legend, and then we have some dude coming to visit America. And someone's like, hey, man, glad to see you. Let's go to my ancient throne room. Paul Seifert knows where it's at. He was obviously able to go back there enough to pilfer these items, send them overseas and stuff like that. He made multiple trips. He actually told the State Historical Society, because again, this was a, it probably wasn't the most well-known story in the area, but people knew about it. He went to the State Historical Society. He goes, oh yeah, you know that cave that was eating all those people up and stuff like that? I know where that's at, but I'm not going to tell you. They're like, why Why would you even come to our meeting to say that? He's like, I don't know, I just, just wanted to. He said, he goes, listen, I actually planted a bunch of foliage, plant a bunch of bushes and stuff in front of the mouth of the cave so no one will ever find it. You're probably thinking, well, okay, we'll just, you know, we'll just start looking for giant holes behind bushes. And he's like, yeah, it's probably true. One of Paul's neighbors one day was actually just hanging out and he hears a pop. It's like, what in tarnation is that? And he gets out of his bed and he starts walking away. He hears the sound and he sees up on this ridge, Paul standing there. And he's like, hey, sorry to wake you up with my dynamite. Sorry, dude. What are you doing up there? He's like, oh, there's like this hole. There's this hole that I'm afraid that kids might fall into. So I'm going to seal it with dynamite. Why well, don't just buy a giant cork or get a sign or something like that? Paul's like, this is way more fun. And based on where he was exploding stuff, the neighbor said that must be where the mine is. Right, it wasn't right outside his house. Like the, it was an explosive. It was an explosion that was heard for quite a while. The guy wasn't like, "Well, golly, Paul!" And then Paul jumps off the ridge and just walks home. And his house is right there. Like it, it's you'd have to go into the wilderness to find this thing. But he goes, "I know where Paul was blowing stuff up, so let's go out there." So they actually had treasure hunters back in the twenties. Again, when this story came out, this Austrian story came out, they kind of verified this thing. You had people go out there and looking for it, and the guy's like, ah, I was over there. They're out there. They never found the cave, even where he was blowing stuff up at. They never, ever found the cave. So what does that mean? I got, I'm giving myself like one minute to wrap this up, because 
This episode's gone on really long. But what does that mean? That means that this cave is, one, probably real. And two, if it is real, it's still out there. If you live in Wisconsin, or if you can travel, if you're not currently incarcerated, if you can get to Wisconsin, you may be able to find this cave. Now, the last report we have of someone being in it was the dude from Austria. And he did say that he heard the sounds of a maniac, that he heard these horrible noises, the sounds of the tortured and stuff. So does it still have some paranormal aspect, or was it just normal stuff going on? That because he was already in a heightened state of anxiety, i.e. being surrounded by hundreds of skeletons in a spooky cave, was making him hear things and see things that weren't really there. But this cave most likely still exists. And you could find it. But if you found it, would you enter that cave? Knowing that whatever curse it once had may have been cured by the great healer. Or would you leave it alone? Let it be a relic for a time that has been long forgotten. Because whoever built that throne room, it wasn't the Winnebago tribe. That cave was carved out by something far older than the Native American tribes. A race, maybe even a species, that were the first ones to reach Wisconsin. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash DeadRabbitRadio. Twitter is at DeadRabbitRadio. DeadRabbitRadio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys.